We're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation this morning. And uh, as I was thinking about this and worshiping, I just kept, all these songs were going through my mind about we'll fly away and, and that uh, He will come and save you. And I thought, oh, I can't wait. I'm aiming at that. Everything in my life, I'm aiming at that moment. That's why I'm living. That's everything that I do is aiming toward that moment. And, uh, and even as Paul said, if, if there is no resurrection, what a waste. But we know it's true, that He's coming back for us one day, I believe, not very long from now. Now, I want to pick up the reading where we left off last week in verse 6 of chapter 14, where John continues this revelation of Jesus Christ. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the sea, the earth, and the springs of water. And a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked And there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the white cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Father, we come once again eager to learn, eager to be conformed to your image. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you have given us this revelation of the future. And we pray that we would take warning We pray, God, that you would instruct us and that you would teach us not only about the kind of men and women and young people that we need to be, but the kind of people that we need to be to reach a world who is going to a certain doom 
outside of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray even now for our friends and family and relatives and neighbors, God, that You would open their eyes and open their ears to the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, may we be a light in darkness, so different from the world that people look and they say, you belong to Jesus, don't you? And that they will be drawn to the Savior and to the light and to life everlasting. And Holy Spirit, once again, I'm so needy. I'm so inadequate for this task of presenting the Word. I sense that so deeply in my heart, even today. And I ask that you would fill me and that you wouldn't let my words fall short of the mark of the heart of these wonderful men and women and people that you love so deeply, that I might speak only your words for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I have uh, one of you uh, aim that fan at me and turn it down a little bit? Thanks. Thanks, Harley. As God um, begins to address the wickedness of man as we've seen him certainly doing in this book and we'll see more of that in the next few weeks and he's addressing the rejection of his son and the worship of the beast really we've left God with only three choices the first choice is that God can choose to ignore it and just put up with it indulge us in our wickedness and sin allowing it to go on forever but this means that all the injustice and pain and suffering and difficulty that we have in this world would go on forever And man doesn't want that, and I don't believe, certainly, that God wants that. The other choice that God has in dealing with man's wickedness is to force man to obey. But, of course, if he did that, he would strip us of the opportunity to love him freely. And God doesn't want obedience without love. And the only other choice that we really leave God with in relationship to our rebellion and wickedness as a world is that he will have to choose to withdraw himself from our presence from those who refuse his love and basically let us have our own way forever a lot of us have uh, shared with friends and family over the years uh, the relationship with Jesus and the importance of knowing God and one of the questions that, uh, that most of us have been asked Uh, at some point is how can a loving God send anyone to hell? I could believe in Him if it weren't for that. How could God do such a thing? Well, God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. It's not His desire that anyone should perish. In fact, He's made it so difficult that you will have to step over the body of His Son to get there. In Hebrews, it talks about the fact that unbelievers and ungodly will trample underfoot the sacrifice of Christ. Every person that ends up in hell will have trampled over and tripped over the body of Jesus Christ. So God warns us, He pleads with us, He's done everything short of taking away our volitional choice. He will not do that. But outside of that, God has spared nothing to communicate His love to a world that has rebelled against him. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that he doesn't want anyone to perish. Not one person does he want to have perish. But he wants everyone to come to eternal life and to a saving knowledge of Christ. 
And just in a cursory fashion, when you think about what God has done to communicate His love, I mean, uh, what hasn't He done is the question. He sent His prophets all through the Old Testament. He set up the Garden of Eden. He communicated with man and woman. He was there physically with them, fellowshipping, communicating the way of life and the way of, of, uh, of joy and peace and purpose. He communicated all of these things with Adam and Eve. And even after they rejected Him and, and failed, He didn't utterly reject them, but He began to teach them in other ways and appeared to them in what the Bible refers to as, uh, or what uh, theologians refers to as a theophany, a, a, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And then He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. He even established a kingdom on earth to demonstrate what could happen to a people who totally gave themselves to God. And that was the kingdom of Israel. And even they failed. And so God sent judgment to bring the people close again. And He sent more prophets and more prophets and more prophets. And then He sent His Son to communicate eternal life. His deep desire that no one would be sent to hell. And of course we know what happened is that he was beaten and crucified and bled and died on the cross. Since that time, God has given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us multiple opportunities. In the book of Revelation, we have the two witnesses. We have eagles flying midair in, in the sky proclaiming the woes that are coming and calling people to repent. We have the 144,000 witnesses. I mean, what lengths will God not go to to communicate His love and His desire that none should perish? And as we look at chapter 14 today, we see what I, I just... I'm, I'm baffled at God's persistence. I'm amazed by it that He just never quits. He never gives up. He never stops. In the course of these verses that we're looking at today, we have three angels that we'll take a look at who are proclaiming the eternal gospel. They're flying in midair. They're, they're, they're rotating and orbiting the earth, shouting, speaking loudly, and crying out to the inhabitants of the world, Why would you die? Why would you reject the love of God? And for the life of me, I can't figure out why anyone would not receive the gift of Christ. But as we know from Scripture, and as we know certainly from the prophecy of Revelation, that many will reject forever the Word of God and the Son of God. But for those who receive and believe, they have the promise of abundance in this life as well as everlasting life with the Father. Now John continues this vision in verse 6 by saying that he saw another angel flying in midair and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. The word angel means a messenger. And so God has sent a messenger to the earth to proclaim the eternal gospel. Now some people have made, uh, tried to, to uh, 
be contemporary, contemporary in their uh, um, understanding and interpretation of this messenger. And they said, these are satellites. These are satellites that are going to go all over the earth, all around the globe, and they're going to be communicating the gospel. And well, we've already got that. We've already got satellites going around the world that are communicating the gospel through radio and Christian TV, and I think that that probably will increase. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an angel. The prophets always were fulfilled literally. And these prophecies will be fulfilled literally as well. And so we actually have an angel who is flying midair. That means in the, not in the, in the far distant uh, universe, but in, in our atmosphere where we can see them. This angel will be circling the globe and preaching the gospel. Preaching the eternal gospel of Christ. We had something similar, as I mentioned earlier, of an eagle flying midair. Uh, through the heavens in the book of uh, Revelation chapter 8 proclaiming these woes uh, you know calling people to repentance and letting them know what's coming if they don't turn now the question is what is the eternal gospel I mean this is one of the only places in the Bible where we have this particular phrase of eternal gospel is it the uh, gospel of the kingdom is it the gospel of grace that Paul mentions in Acts or the gospel of Christ mentioned in Galatians or is it a different type of gospel well, I believe it's all of those, but I believe it also includes, in emphasis, the good news that God is about to deal with the people of earth in righteousness and He is about to establish His sovereignty as reigning King over the universe. Now, this message is given to those who dwell on the earth and to every nation, tribe, and language. And it's interesting, uh, if any of you have ever been involved in missions work at all or been a part of a missions group, one of the verses that a lot of missions group, groups use is Matthew 24:14, And I'm going to read it to you. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Anybody hear this verse before? I've been at mission conferences where people say, Okay, by the year 2000, this was like 10 years ago, by the year 2000 we want to have the whole earth blanketed with the gospel and we are going to expedite and bring in and usher in the coming of the king. And it's motivating when somebody says that. It's like, you mean we can get him to come here sooner by witnessing because we can proclaim the gospel? And it sounds right, except that I don't really think it's a correct interpretation of the passage. I think what this passage means, although I'm totally for evangelism and totally for missions and for extending the kingdom through the gospel. But I don't think that that's what this verse is talking about. I think this verse is actually talking about these final days when these angels will encompass the globe and orbit the earth proclaiming the eternal gospel and then the end will come. Now, this angel says in a loud voice in verse 7, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So we have an angel coming and saying his first proclamation is fear God. He's going to give us three, but the first is to fear God. Now, I've heard so many teachings on the fear of God, and most often the definition is an awesome wonder or reverence. Isn't that what you've heard? An awe of God, a wonder, but not a trembling fear. But that's actually not correct. When you look at the word fear of God in the Bible, the, the actual word means a wholesome dread of displeasing God. A wholesome dread of displeasing God. It doesn't mean that we're cowering from God. We have nothing to fear if we, if we do the things that honor Him. It's like my son. My son has nothing to fear from me. He knows he'll never be disciplined or, or hurt in any way. 
except for when he does those things that are inappropriate and ungodly and that I need to discipline him for. So he, he never walks around wondering if I'm going to spank him for no reason. No, it's only when he disobeys that sometimes he needs to be disciplined. And in the same way for believers, there is to be a wholesome dread of displeasing God. And I have to tell you something. This is lacking in the evangelical church today. There is, a, rarely do you find a genuine fear of the Lord to do anything that would displease Him. People are kind of like, well, you know, I don't really, you know, this doesn't seem that bad to me and I don't have a problem with it. And, you know, there's just a, an excusing of an area. It might be in a marriage where the husband knows that he's got something wrong. He's, he's harsh or critical or abusive in some way or that he's not leading the family and he just excuses it indefinitely. And, and there's no fear of God or a wife who doesn't, isn't willing to submit to her husband's leadership as to the Lord and just fights and fights and fights. And, and the Bible says that, that's, a, that's a, a lack of fear of God. Or when we have some sort of sin in our life that we excuse indefinitely, like, you know, there's, well, I won't even begin the list because then you'll, be, you'll excuse yourself if I don't hit yours. But there's some area in our life where, where we just kind of put up with it and for so long that we don't even really think about it much anymore. And I have to tell you, you need to develop and I need to develop a wholesome fear of displeasing God. We have way too many people in the church and it's part of the reason why the church has become weak way too many people who allow sin to continue in their life and the Bible says that we are to be a people who fear God in Proverbs 8.13 we're told that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil if we don't hate evil all evil not just other people's evil but our own evil then we really haven't learned the fear of the Lord so I encourage you I've been, out of all the things in this whole passage, for some reason this really grabbed my heart for our church, is that we would be a church that fear God. Never willing or desiring to do anything that would ever in any way dishonor or displease our Heavenly Father. Now the angel continues his proclamation in this eternal gospel and he says that we are to give glory to God. Glory means dignity or honor or praise and this is in the face of humanity that refuses to even acknowledge Him, much less give Him glory. I can't think of anything I'd rather do in life than to give God glory. I mean, I love giving God glory. I think that's part of the reason that God, over the last few years, has cultivated in my prayer time a, a greater emphasis on thanksgiving than anything else in my life. I, pr I pray more thanks than I pray anything else. I pray more th of that than requests. I, I just find great delight in thanking God and that's a part of giving God glory and he loves it and there's something in me it's a spirit that leaps when I'm doing what God has created me to do and he'll do the same thing in you as you give him glory but the world will refuse to give God glory in Romans 1 21 we're told that although they knew God they had a knowledge of God why? because God has been persistently communicating the gospel although they knew him they neither glorified Him as God or gave thanks to Him. And see, the believers, if you want to know what kind of a man or woman God wants in His kingdom, look at the opposite of this. The opposite of, of these people who know God but they don't glorify Him or give Him thanks. Do you want to be a person who glorifies God? Well, then be a person of thanksgiving, a person of worship, a person who acknowledges God, not just in your mind but in your life because there's an evidence of the fear of the Lord in your life. 
And then the angel says that we are to fear or to worship Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. This word worship is proskuneo. By the way, I want to back up just for a minute because there's something important that I left out. The word, just to help you with understanding the fear of the Lord, the Greek word is phobio. Sound familiar? Phobia. A fear. I had to back up because that word is so important that you understand. It's not just like, uh, oh, we love you, God. It's like, I don't want to do anything to dishonor God. And you know what? I'm going to back up because God has just put something on my heart that I need to share with you about this again. So forgive me, but I'm going to speak what He gives me to speak. There are times in my life when I want to do evil. There are times in my life where sometimes I feel like uh, I don't have the privilege or right to do things that other people would have the privilege or right to do. As a believer, there are certain things that I can't do that you might be able to do. But I can't because of my position. I I have to constantly maintain self-control over my tongue and over my thoughts and over my words because you're His flock. And, And so I'm constantly constrained by that love of God but also a, a, a real fear, a dread of mishandling the Word of God or mishandling the flock of God. And so I, I'm constantly constrained by that fear. And sometimes in my heart, I want to react. You know, I just want to say whatever I want to say. I want to do whatever I want to do. But I can't. And you know what happens is that God speaks to me about this and this has to do with the fear of the Lord and I'm sharing it so that you can understand my heart but also apply it to your own life is that sometimes when I feel like just saying whatever I want to say and doing whatever I want to do you know what happens is that God says to me you're going to have to go back and make it right if you do. You're going to have to go back and you're going to have to confess it and you're going to have to repent publicly for it and I'm not going to honor that kind of behavior or those kind of words and that fear of God knowing I'm going to have to go back holds me in check it prevents me from doing things that are ungodly I have all kinds of ungodly things that come to my mind at times stuff that shocks me I'm assuming that maybe you have thoughts like that too on occasion but the fear of God holds me in check and it protects me Because I don't want to do anything that would dishonor God or displease Him. And even in in my effort and my desire, I still stumble. And you're so gracious to me as as brothers and sisters in forgiving me when I've done something wrong or hurt you in some way. And I never want to hurt anyone. But the fear of God is so important. And if we really have a fear of God, it will be evident in our life. We'll have the fruit of the Spirit. We will be men and women who are self-controlled and who constantly, even under duress and under pressure and under great strain, will respond in a godly way. This is the fear of the Lord. This is the mark of a believer. is to hate evil. Oh, you know, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, please take home the fear of the Lord and realize how important this is for us as a body. And how without the fear of the Lord you will never be able to please God. You will never be able to honor God because you will do and say things that are not keeping in keeping with Scripture and with the example and modeling of Jesus Christ. The fear of the Lord is a wonderful gift of God to protect us from dishonoring Him 
and for creating all kinds of unnecessary problems in her own life. And so I, I, I wanted to share that with you because I felt like the Holy Spirit, even as I was speaking, wanted me to speak to you about my own struggle and my own battle at times against my own flesh and how important it is as a people of God that we are so different from the world that we would be constrained by a, a fearful dread of doing anything that would dishonor or displease God in our marriages, in our workplace, in our private lives, in the church. Well, I ate up a lot of time on that, so I'm going to have to speed up. But I think God wanted me to speak on that. Now, the third proclamation is that this angel said that we are to worship. It's proskuneo. It means to prostrate ourselves before God. It means to get down low. It means to completely humble ourselves before God. That's part of the eternal gospel of God is that we would be a people who wouldn't be ashamed but we would prostrate ourselves. And I've talked to you about this and, and encouraged you that I be a man and a woman who is frequently kneeling in your prayer time. Be a man or a woman who prostrates yourself before God. There's something very powerful when, when you physically take that position of humility. Something that happens in your heart, I feel it every time I kneel, is that this is the right place for me to be at this moment, is kneeling before God and prostrating myself. And this angel is proclaiming the eternal gospel and a part of that is being a man or a woman who prostrates ourselves before God. Now the irony of this is that although people are damning themselves by their rejection of Jesus Christ, their refusal to worship and to honor and to believe and to receive Jesus, in spite of that, the Bible says that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So though the world may reject now, the irony is, is that they are going to be forced to bow. But now, as believers, you and I have this incredible honor, this incredible privilege of voluntarily, volitionally, out of tremendous joy, prostrating ourselves before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Do you realize what an honor that is? That God counts that as precious? That when you bow before Him and honor Him in that fashion that He's pleased with that? To me, it's, a, it's almost unimaginable that there's anything that I can do that would be of any pleasure or value to God. And yet He gives us the honor, little old us, to do something that honors Him. And one of those things is when we worship prostrating ourselves before Him and acknowledging Him and giving Him His due. Now there's a second angel that John sees in verse 8. The second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now Babylon was a city that was built by Nimrod. We have the, the uh, record of that in, in uh, Genesis chapter 10 and 11. It's an, a very interesting story, one worth reading. But uh, it became, that city became infamous for the Tower of Babel, where the languages of the world were confused because man was setting up a symbol of pride and rebellion against God. In fact, this was another one of strategies 
uh, Satan's strategies early on in the game to counterfeit the work of God and to strip God of what only he deserved, which was worship, and bring it to himself. And we know the rest of the story that even though Satan had this desire to strip God of what belonged to him and to corrupt man's understanding of God, as well as God's plan of salvation is revealed in chapter 3 of Genesis that a Savior would come. In spite of that, God overcame. Now, what is the city of Babylon that he's referring to, or this Babylon? Well, there are three options. One is that it could be actually the literal city, a rebuilt Babylon in the Middle East. And a lot of expositors and scholars believe that's exactly what will happen. But there's other possibilities. It could be a reference to the worldly system of Babylon. So not just the city, but the, the whole worldly enterprise of rejecting Jesus Christ. Or it could be a reference to the religious system of the beast. And personally, I think it's going to be all three. I think it'll be a literal city that will uh, uh, have the, all the earmarkings of the Babylon of old along with the worship of the beast. I think it's going to include the religious and political system that's antichrist. So all three, I believe, will be included in that definition of Babylon. We're told that she made the, the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. This intoxicating, disorienting wine mixed for the nations. And I, I think again about um, uh, liquor. And what does liquor do? Except it, 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 it takes inhibitions away. It, it takes your, your capacity to think clearly away. I, I was shocked, and I've shared this before, but 80% of all crimes are committed under the influence of alcohol. Did you know that? Nationwide. 80% of the people who are in prison now committed their crimes while under the influence of alcohol. Why? Because they're not thinking clearly. And that's exactly what's going to happen with the nations. They are going to be intoxicated by the pleasures of this world and they will be disoriented into committing all kinds of sexual illicit perversions that we talked about last week. Primarily spiritual adultery. A giving of ourselves to someone or something other than Jesus Christ alone. And so as Babylon makes the nations drink the wine of her spiritual adulteries and fornications and unfaithfulness, the wine of Babylon will intoxicate them into rejecting and disobeying God. Now there's a third proclamation from another angel. I mean, do you get the idea that God is really trying to communicate with the world here? We've got three angels flying midair, and the third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. This wrath that he's talking about is it's a, it's, it's a, it's a white-hot anger. There's another word in, in the Greek for wrath. It's orge. And it's more of an organized, planned anger. It's kind of the anger that you have with, your, with a child where you, where you know they've done the wrong thing, but you're very controlled in your discipline. But that's not what this is talking about. This anger is a white-hot anger at sin. And a lot of people have difficulty reconciling the love of God and the wrath of God, but God is totally love, but He will not tolerate sin, and He has a white-hot anger towards sin. And again, this goes back to the fear of the Lord. If we really fear the Lord, we will hate evil. How much does God hate evil? It makes Him white-hot. And it should make us white-hot as well, if we truly have a fear of the Lord. He says that this cup of his fury will be poured out full strength. It means undiluted in his judgment. Now presently God is being very merciful. 
This is an, a window of grace. It's a window of God opening his heart and there's very little judgment. Certainly God is judging in, in different ways but it's not the, the full judgment that's coming. But there's going to come a time when man or woman who is without Christ will have to drink and face the pure and undiluted wrath of God. And this is frightening. I fear for unbelievers. I truly fear for them. They have no idea what's coming. That's why we need to be communicating as clearly as we can the coming wrath of God to the unbelieving world. These people will be tormented with burning sulfur. It's interesting that all of this is in the first person singular. It's not talking to a big group. It's not talking to all the inhabitants of the world. But the, the, the way that this sentence is constructed, it's, it's individualized. And so this is an experience that every man and every woman and every young person will have to face alone. You won't be doing it in a big group. You won't be doing it with your family. Men and women who don't know Jesus will have to come before God by themselves and face the judgment of God. We're told that this burning sulfur is referred to in Matthew 25 as a lake of fire that's prepared for Satan and his angels. You notice it doesn't say prepared for this person and that person that I don't like. No. God never intended that hell would be populated by men and women made in his image. He knew it would happen, but it wasn't his plan or desire for that to happen. Unbelievers make that choice of their own accord. And it will be stepping over the body of Christ and the prophecies and the scriptures and all of the unfolding mysteries that are taking place in the book of Revelation. And we're told that the smoke of this burning and torment in verse 11 will rise forever and ever and there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This word rest means to have relief or to cease from labor or be refreshed. And what Jesus is saying through John in this revelation is that the unbelieving world condemned eternally because of their rejection of Christ will suffer without any respite, without even a moment's rest. Can you imagine suffering with not even a brief vacation? We, we have a hard time just working full-time jobs without a vacation. And we're talking about suffering that the world knows nothing about. And they will not have even a moment's break. In Jude, I was reminded of this verse. It says, Keep yourselves in the love of God as you await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And, oh, I just encourage you as a body, keep yourselves. We have a responsibility. We have a part in that. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And he goes on and he says, Be merciful to those who doubt and snatch others from the fire and save them. He speaks of it as if it's already happened, but it will happen and Jesus sees it already as if it has happened. He knows what's coming. And he says, snatch them out of the fire. When you lead someone to Christ and God uses you in that way, you are actually delivering someone from eternal torment. And so God has given us a great opportunity and responsibility to share the word of God. Now there's an exhortation and a word of encouragement in verses 12 and 13. He says, this calls... For patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. 
This word patient endurance is, means to remain under. It means to, to stay steady and endure regardless of the intensity or duration of the difficulties that we face. And rem, I'm reminding you that he's talking about tribulation saints. But how much more those of us who have so little to face in this life of difficulty, we need to be people who persevere and not crumble when, the, you know, we have the smallest thing. Somebody, we get in a little conflict with somebody and we crumble. You know, we fall apart and our witness goes out the window and we act like, you know, we have a little, you know, a little hissy fit, you know, over some problem, some conflict. And, and it, you know, I, I've done it myself. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, the tribulation saints are going to be facing something genuine and real in terms of persecution. And God wants them to patiently endure. To bear up under in a godly way. And how much more those of us who aren't facing these kind of troubles should bear up under in a very godly way. I mean, when we have conflict or difficulties or various things that happen in life, it, it really reveals a lot if we just fall apart. And it also reveals a tremendous amount if we bear up under it in a godly way. And no matter what happens around us, we continue to respond with the love of Christ, with total faith in Him, with confidence in Him through prayer, laying those things that are concerning us at the feet of the cross and then obeying the Word of God in, in how we correctly handle difficulties in life. Now he's talking to saints who are, are not perfect people, but they're, as we've talked about before, people who've been set apart. And there are two things that he says about them. He says they obey God's commandments and they remain faithful to Jesus. They obey God's commandments and they remain faithful to Jesus. If we had these two things going in our lives, there's no question that God would honor your life and my life. Obeying His commands, what does 1 John 5.3 says? This is love for God, to obey His commands. There are all kinds of people all over the United States that claim to love God. We've got people everywhere. If they take a poll, you know, like if, uh, if there's a poll that's done nationally, like 75% of the people claim to be Christians. Well, I find that a little hard to believe. But that's what people think. But if we came to them and said, how many of you really follow God? Love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you love your neighbor as yourself. I think that it might go way down. I'm just guessing. But I think it might go way down. So it's not so important what our standard is and what we think is love for God. It's what God says is love for God. And God says that love for Him is to be in accordance with His will and do those things that truly honor Him and bring Him glory. And part of that is keeping His commandments. Now it's interesting, I had a, a, a fairly lengthy talk with a, a brother who um, I don't know but has been watching our TV program. And uh, he really believes that the, the church is responsible to keep all of the commandments of God. There's 618 or something like that in the Old Testament and that we're responsible to keep those. But the Bible clearly says that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. Everything was a shadow pointing to Jesus. And so now the church is left with a very simple command. Love God and love others. And if you've done this, you fulfill the entire law of God. And I find that so absolutely freeing. And so obeying the commands is a part of these, uh, the, the life of these saints who patiently endure. We also find that they, are, they remain faithful to Jesus. Remember Revelation 2 when Jesus is speaking to the church? He says, be faithful even to the point of death. Be faithful even to the point of death. And what will God do for you? He will give you the crown of life. So God is looking for men and women like us who will be faithful. 
We're not fa- anybody facing death this last week? Anybody almost lose your life for being a Christian? Probably not. There are many people in the world who are. Uh, many who are imprisoned even now and, and uh, probably without question those who are, who are suffering uh, a very painful death even as I speak. How much more should those of us who have such ease in this life be faithful to God? Absolutely loyal to the Savior. And then there's a, a promise of a blessing. It's a beatitude. It's actually the second one in Scripture. In verse 13, John heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. They're actually going to have rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. This word blessed means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. <laughs> have you ever had those moments in your walk with God where you're just like ready to explode? I have them every once in a while. I don't have them all the time, but sometimes God just wells up in me and I'm so excited about Him. It's like I just, I, and I do, I, I'm in my car and I scream. I know it sounds strange, but I got my windows rolled up and the air on, but I'm just screaming, worshiping God and I'm just shouting out. I, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that at, at Safeway or at the market or whatever. But in, in private, I just, I worship him and I love him and, I, and he just fills me with such intense joy that I can't do anything but cry out and acknowledge him and love him with everything I've got. And it wells up inside of me. And it's a feeling of being blessed. It's a, an inner satisfaction and bliss that the world can't offer, but Jesus offers to anyone who follows him with a whole heart. Now he says something interesting here. He says, from now on. Isn't that odd? It's like, it almost gives the impression that everybody who's died before won't be blessed, but all, from this point on, everybody's going to be blessed. I don't think that's what that means. I think there's a special blessing, a special anointing of bliss that God is going to place on the lives of these tribulation saints during this very difficult time. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, of Paul and Peter and the different disciples. They have a couple of different occasions where they were in prison and they were filled with bliss in worshiping God, filled with a tremendous amount of joy. And I believe that this blessing from now on reflects a special blessing that, will, that God will give to those who suffer the intensified persecution of the beast during this very difficult time. Isn't that God's way? If we trust Him and completely give ourselves to Him in our difficulties, God will rise to the occasion and give us everything we need to be joyful even in the trial. That's what God will give you. He won't give it to a man or woman who doesn't come to Him though. Or to a man or woman who has no fear of God and just lashes back out or does whatever they feel like saying or doing. But He gives it to the man or woman who humbles themselves and prostrates themselves before God and says, God, I don't know how to respond to this. I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. And I'm looking to you for the answer. And God will anoint that man or that woman or that young person with a special blessing of his bliss and joy. And I've had that right in the smack dab middle. I'll have to tell you something. I'm blowing off the end of my sermon here, so I'm going to have a little time. But right in the middle of a trial, you can have bliss. The other day, I woke up and I, was, I woke up anxious about something at 5 a.m. And I usually get up fairly early, but this was a little bit earlier than I normally get up. And I couldn't sleep. You ever have those moments, sleepless nights, where you're just like stressed about something? And I don't really have a whole lot of stress in my life because I lay stuff before God, but I had stress about something. Something came up in my heart that was bothering me. That had, uh, it's something that's been on my plate for uh, quite a while, a few years now. And... Um, and I've given it to God and just had complete peace. But all of a sudden, it got stirred up. Satan stirred it up in my heart again. 
probably my flesh too, just a combination of things. But I woke from a dead sleep thinking about this. And, and, and right in the middle of it, I started getting anxious. And I started, I started writing some stuff down about what I needed to do about this problem that wasn't being addressed properly. It's not in the church. It has something to do with something outside the church. And I, so I was figuring it out. And in my flesh, I was thinking, okay, I've got to do this. This is enough. This has got to stop, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm writing it all down, figuring out, well, I'm totally in the flesh. I mean, I'm, I'm getting stirred up in my flesh. And I'm sure I'm the only one that's ever had anything like this happen. But I was getting stirred up a little bit. And, and frustrated and irritated and, I, and, I, and, I, and more I wrote down and, the, and I, I started getting upset and angry. I'm so glad you're not like this. <laughs> but in the course of becoming angry I went to the Word of God and I knew my heart was wrong. I knew it was wrong. And I went to the Word of God and I won't tell you what passage because if I do it will give the whole thing away and, I, and it's got to be something private because it involves someone else. But in the course of going to Scripture God showed me exactly what He wanted me to do. <laughs> And I read it and I said, I don't like that at all. That, that's not what I want. That's not what I, I don't want to hear that. I don't really like that. And, and, and I read it and I said, you know, I have no choice, do I? And he says, no, you don't. You must respond in a godly way. And my flesh didn't want to respond in a godly way. And this is one of those fear of God moments where I knew if I didn't, God would remove his blessing. It's not that he wouldn't love me, but he would withdraw slightly and let me... Suffer, And you know what my main concern was? It wasn't me. It was you. Because God is doing something very special in this church. And I'm so aware, I'm so cognizant of the fact that if I dishonor God in any way, I don't want to dishonor Him. I don't want Him to remove His hand of blessing. I don't want Him to have any cause to look at our church and say, well, Bob, you compromised big time. You fleshed out. Nobody else knows about it, but I know about it. And until you make this right... We won't be right. And the fear of God held me in check. And I read that scripture and I said, I don't have a choice. I said, I will obey. And I began to worship God and I began to thank Him for helping me obey. And you can ask my wife. I was just like, <laughs> I was so thankful. And attached to the particular thing that God showed me is He said, and I will bless you greatly. And I'm not so concerned about God blessing me greatly, but I want God to bless you greatly. I want God to give you everything that you need that you might be everything that He's made you to be. And so I have a fear of God of doing anything that would dishonor Him. But in the very midst of that moment when I, my heart was in turmoil I began to experience the blessedness of following Jesus. And my heart was filled with joy and the burden lifted and I've given it back to Him and I'm free again. Absolutely free. And it only took a few minutes in His Word. And He spoke to me. And He'll do the same with you if you're willing to listen. Now John says that the Spirit spoke and said that these men and women who are blessed in this fashion, who obey God and are willing to follow Him and remain faithful to Jesus will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. This word rest means to have relief or to cease from your labor. It's the same word referring to the unbelievers who will have no rest. It's the very same word. In contrast, the believers will have rest. And it means the labor means from hard work, from toil, from, from a weariness that exhausts. And I have to tell you, in pastoring and being a Christian, just living in the world, I get tired. And if I didn't know that it was going to end someday, I, would, I wouldn't work nearly as hard as I am. I'll be really honest with you. I don't like working 
really hard all the time. I would like to work less. I would like to, uh, I, I never really do uh, very much except ministry and then spend time with my family. But outside of that, I don't really do anything else. But I'm willing to work hard because I know at the end there's going to be a reward and that my main interest is not getting something but being able to be faithful to God and to honor Him with my life. And so God is looking for men and women like that. I want to be like that. I've got such a long way to go and I know you want to be that way and you probably think to yourself, well, I've got a long way to go too. Well, good. We've all got a long way to go. But let's keep moving in that direction knowing that God will give us rest. We can rest later. There's going to be a time, and I'm, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not talking about never vacationing and never resting. We need those times. But we need to be laboring diligently in the kingdom until that time of rest comes and let God be the one to decide when that final rest comes. In the meantime, we need to be diligent about the Father's business and faithful to Him, not disloyal, not committing spiritual adultery by doing this and that and the other thing and having divided interest, but giving ourselves fully to God. And the really amazing thing that he says in closing here is that our deeds or the deeds of these saints will follow them. You know what this means? It means that what you've done for the glory of God and in the love of Christ and by His Spirit will follow you and will not be lost. That means a lot to me. I don't know if it means a lot to you, but it means an awful lot to me. In Hebrews 6.10, we're told that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. Everything that you do for the Lord will last. But I, I must tell you and warn you as well that anything that you do for yourself will not last, even if it's a good work. If you do a good work to pat yourself on the back or to be seen by others, the Bible says you have your reward. That's it. We need to be men and women who are constantly being motivated by the love of God and by the Spirit of God and anything that comes out of that, the Bible says those deeds will accompany us into heaven. Why is that so important? Is it because, yeah, look, look at my basket, bigger than yours or something? No, it's nothing like that. What it means is that those who come into the, into the kingdom of God with their arms full will be able to lay that before God as a sacrifice of worship. That's what I'm interested in. I don't care what I've got in my basket. I only care what I've got in my basket because I want to worship Him with everything I've got and I don't want to come into His kingdom empty-handed because I want to bring something. I want to bring a sacrifice of praise. And if you're interested in coming with something that's honoring to God, then be about His business and be faithful to Him and serve Him and let love motivate everything that you do. Honoring Him and exemplifying the life of Christ. The Bible says also that those who are found faithful will be given positions of authority and leadership. Is that, is that of interest to us? Well, possibly. There's nothing wrong with that. Even the Bible says that it's a good thing to aspire to a role of a leader in the church. That's not a bad thing. But the main thing is, is that we have the opportunity in a greater way to serve God in the kingdom to come. Don't you want to be like that? Oh, I don't know how to tell you what's in my heart except to say that God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love and He keeps reaching out. He's reaching out to the world. He doesn't want to lose anyone. He wants everyone to find eternal life. And He wants you to be men and women who are faithful even to the very end. Men and women who obey Him. Men and women who glorify Christ. Who have a, a healthy 
dread of displeasing him, a fear of God. Men and women who thank him and worship him in every situation. Men and women who worship him, who prostrate themselves regularly before his presence and find themselves more in love with him all the time. Men and women who experience the bliss, the utter joy that has nothing to do with circumstances and everything to do with being in the center of God's will. That's the life God has called us to. And that's the life that God wants for me. And it's the life He wants for you. And one day, not long from now, He will return. And when He does, we will have rest. And we will be with Him forever. And we will be rewarded. And we will take our rightful place in His kingdom, bringing honor and glory and praise to Him forever and ever and ever. In a most remarkable way, He gives us that honor to do that kind of activity and that kind of a lifestyle even now. Choose God. Choose Him again. Father, we thank You for loving us so deeply. We thank You for pouring out Your life to us, God. We thank You for speaking to us and ministering to us. And Holy Spirit, I want to thank You for directing this time of teaching. It went uh, uh, quite a bit differently than I expected. But these are things that were on Your heart. You prepared me, but guided, and I'm so grateful. I pray that You will use those detours that You spoke to me about to touch the hearts of every one of us that we might be men and women who follow you closely who obey you who love you who find great delight in fearing you and bringing glory to your name and worshiping you and God thank you that soon very soon you will come with your reward and you will take us up together and there we will be with you forever enjoying the rest that you have prepared for us Praise you, Lord. In the meantime, help us to be faithful, each and every one, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.